Hey guys, welcome to the Rare Earth Podcast. My name is Manoj, an engineer by qualification, a banker by profession, and a podcaster by passion. My goal is to really bring people who have actually charted the unconventional path, explore their learnings, and share that with you. So I'm super excited to have you join me on this show. And now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Rare Earth Podcast and my guest today is Kenny DeGiglio. He's the Director of Education at Palms Crypto Academy. Uh, this academy primarily focuses in educating everybody in the world of crypto, in the world of Bitcoin. So I had the privilege of attending this academy earlier this year and that is where I actually met up with Kenny and uh, my conversation with Kenny since then has been remarkable. He's somebody who is like a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the world of crypto and Bitcoin. And that is why I wanted to feature him in our episode. So in this episode, uh, we really learn a lot about the world of Bitcoin. Okay, so if you are completely new to this space and you've been wondering what people are talking about in the world of crypto, this is going to be extremely subject heavy. If you're a newbie, you're going to walk away with some interesting insights, understanding and some of the jargons which are frequently used. Key points of this episode, uh, we speak about Kenny's journey towards Bitcoin, how he got started and why he's so passionate about it. Then he simplifies uh, some of the common terms used by people in the crypto world like hash rates, uh, public and private keys, nodes, blocks, Bitcoin mining, blockchain and digital signatures. So these are the terms that you will really get a little bit of insight about. And then he speaks about how the first Bitcoins were mined and you know, what is the story behind the Bitcoin white paper? Uh, he describes how Bitcoin actually allows for a truly censorship resistant digital currency and why it resolves the double spending problem. Now, if you're wondering what that is, you've got to pay attention to this episode. And uh, he also explains uh, some of the commonly misunderstood concepts about Bitcoin. So this was a very interesting conversation. This was a long pending conversation, which I had to bring it out. Also, uh, as a side note, uh, you will notice uh, that the audio of this particular episode is a little bit not the best version, unfortunately, because Kenny was in the middle of a house shifting when we did this recording. We couldn't get the best audio from his side. But if you just sticked around with the conversation, you will really start getting a hang of the topic and you really get to learn all the things that Kenny is sharing in this episode. So I really had a blast having this conversation with him and I'm sure by end of this episode, you will also walk away with a lot of insights uh, and learnings uh, when we speak about the world of Bitcoin. So please enjoy my wide ranging conversation with one and only Kenny. All right. Welcome, Kenny. Welcome to the Rare Earth Podcast. It's really good to see you after a long time. Yeah, I'm very excited to see your smiling face, man. It's been a while. That's true. So for people wondering uh, who is Kenny and how did I stumble into him, this goes back to a few months back that I, I you know, plugged into a very interesting course organized by Anthony Pompliano. It's in the Crypto Academy where we went through a three-week rigorous and really intense uh, training on fundamentals of Bitcoin and crypto. And uh, that is where I met Kenny. And Kenny is one of the key members in the course and he specializes in Bitcoin and finance. And uh, he's somebody who I discovered in the process of post-discussion groups. So after the main session, we used to have these discussion groups and Kenny is somebody who 
really um, enlightened all of us and his depth of knowledge and his wide range of understanding about this space is really interesting. So I definitely uh, wanted to feature you in. So really happy to have you, Kenny. Yeah, thank you, man. I appreciate the kind words. And yeah, man, and those, those sessions that we had, the post-workshop discussion groups is what we call them, uh, with your cohort. I think you were in the ninth cohort. Or right. epic, man. We we had some that went from freaking two and a half hours. Our uh, significant others and kids were coming into the office, getting mad at us. And then we eventually had to wrap it up. But yeah, those are my absolute favorite, man. We're in the middle. Of, we can get into what even the program's about if you want. But we're in the middle of cohort. And so it's, when we're running a cohort, it's essentially every night we have something going on. And I'm on Zoom and I'm talking about Bitcoin, which is my favorite thing in the world to do. And so when we're off, I like pace around my apartment like a lost puppy. I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> uh, I have no one to talk Bitcoin with. It sucks. So. Yeah. And so I want to start with the first question. A lot of us um, who are not familiar with the space, they see these um, display picture of people on the Twitter with the laser eyes. So what's the story of the people having these laser eyes, including yourself? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. My dad is, my dad's a... Um, <laughs> lifelong Wall Street guy. He's worked on the technology side of Wall Street his whole life. And he, I think, came across my picture either on the program website or on Twitter. And he's like, what the hell is up with the laser eyes, man? <laughs> and I just thought, it, it's a meme, LOL. Because I didn't feel like going into the explanation because he still wouldn't understand it. Um, it's pretty simple. It was probably, where were we at? March. So it was probably January, February of last year. Mm-hmm. And the initial, it was, it was in the bull market or whatever the hell you want to call it. Who even knows? But the price run-up was first starting. I don't even know where we were price-wise. It was, I guess we were around like Bitcoin price I'm talking about, 17000 I think it was when uh, Tesla announced that they had purchased some Bitcoin. And then we had that kind of parabolic run-up, so 60000 or something. I'm like forgetting the numbers. And so the meme originated from this group. <laughs> I think they call themselves the meme cards on Twitter, but it's basically a group of Bitcoiners who are really good at making memes. And they created this meme and it's basically laser right until 100K. And the idea was you put these laser eyes in your profile picture and it says we're laser focused on a $100,000 Bitcoin price and we're going to keep these laser eyes uh, on until 100K. Everyone thinking that 100K was imminent. We'd be at $100,000 in Bitcoin price in a couple of months or something. Uh, and so it's been, I don't know, over a year now. And so now we all have these laser eyes and it's now more of it's definitely a meme. It's like a signaling mechanism. So you'll see certain Twitter threads where someone says something particularly stupid, especially like a Keynesian economist or someone who just says something that's completely backwards and incorrect. And then you go into the replies and it'll just be this nonstop thread of all of these laser eye people commenting <laughs> on and telling them how stupid they are and putting links to the Mises Institute, which is like a big hub of a bunch of Austrian economists. Uh, articles and books and everything and so that's basically it bitcoiners are a unique bunch and so it's basically a way of like oh this person's a bitcoiner resonate with them i'm part of the uh, their in group yeah yeah I, I think as soon as we see somebody from the same tribe that is this brotherhood that instantly we feel a sense of connect so laser eyes is a great signal instantly i feel that yeah for sure it's a funny thing but i like it i think i look pretty fly with laser eyes <laughs> so i'm gonna keep them <laughs> That's interesting, man. I would like to discuss in this conversation, obviously, we will touch on the fundamentals because a lot of people, even though hear quite a bit of these jargons around, they wouldn't understand what Bitcoin is or what it stands for. Uh, so we definitely will keep the conversation to probably cater to people who are the first time listeners to these concepts. I know that for you, that may be like going back to the 
alphabets as compared to the sentences. Is that cool with you? Yeah, I love it. Sounds good. All right. How did you first learn about Bitcoin and how did your journey start in this space? Yeah, that's always been an interesting question. And what you find is that most people, it takes them like three bumps, like bumping into Bitcoin like three times before they take a serious look at it. And so it's like an interesting marketing concept. Before I came on with Inflection Points and Crypto Academy in my current role, I'm the director of education there now. I ran a collegiate level education company. And so basically we catered to freshmen and sophomores. And so what that meant is every single year we had to get our customers back because we consistently had this new crop of freshmen coming in. And so marketing was really important. And so basically it's like, if you ever, if you ever heard about Seth Godin, he's written some like really amazing marketing books. So I think this was originally his, I'm pretty sure it was, but basically you need to reach someone in three different ways. And then when you do that, the marketing is, is much more likely to be successful. So in the context of my previous company, Lion Tutors, it would be like, if we, if people were just seeing our Facebook or our YouTube ad, it wouldn't be very successful. Hmm. But if they received the Facebook ad and they also received the flyer from one of our employees on campus, it'd be a little bit more successful. But a trio of Facebook ad, so digital marketing, receiving like a guerrilla marketing type, someone handing them a flyer, and then their friend being like, yo, this company is amazing. They helped me ace my exam. Like they'll be our customers for life. So that was like that concept that we saw uh, in the context of marketing. I feel like with Bitcoin, it's really similar. So I had like like very clearly remember like my three bump ins. So my first was I went to Penn State and I was in a fraternity and I lived in the fraternity house for my sophomore and my junior year. And so it was my sophomore year. So it must have been, <clears throat> excuse me, let's think probably it was the fall of 2012. Right? Okay. And I had this guy who I lived with. And it was him and it was a subgroup, and they were involved in this legitimate pyramid scheme. It was called Ver or Vima or something like that. And it was basically a, a, a legit like pyramid scheme. And they were in like the very bottom floor of it, and they were making a ton of money. It was basically like a direct to consumer energy drink type thing. But it was just a blatant pyramid scheme. They got really lucky, and they were doing amazing. They have like BMWs that they that the company leased from them. And so we're all in college. All of us are poor. And then. <laughs> These guys were making like thousands of dollars a week. And so I was obviously like jealous and I was like, fuck you guys. It's a pyramid scheme. You're going to get rug pulled, blah, blah, blah. And so these guys were skipping class all the time and they were sitting in their dorm room, like smoking bong hits and day trading Bitcoin at that time. So it was 2012. So I'm assuming it was, I don't remember uh, specifically, but it must have been out Gox, I'm assuming is where they were doing that. Mm -hmm. And so like they were already involved in this like blatant pyramid scheme. And I was like, Bitcoin is a total scam. You guys are idiots. You're going to lose all your money. And so that was like the first time I was exposed to Bitcoin. Graduated uh, college in 2015, started a company right after, and I was basically head down in this company from basically 2015 into 2017. So I had very little free time. Mm -hmm. uh, but Bitcoin was always really interesting to me. So it was something that I tried to read about whenever I could. But we had the craziness in 2017. But when it came to learning Bitcoin from first principles, there wasn't nearly as much as there is now. Like now there's a million podcasts, there's a million books, there's a million places that you can learn about Bitcoin. Mm. It definitely existed, but it wasn't as much. And it, you, you had to really know where to look. But mm. I, I, was, I was really interested in it. And I spent, you know, a, a decent amount of time. But I, I was starting this company and I didn't have I, That was my second pass. And then my third pass, I remember it was in 2018. And I think the Bitcoin Standard and then BJ Boyapati's article that some people may be familiar with, it's called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. Right. They came out, I wrote it down, um, 
they came out within 20 days of one another. It was like March, 2018. Okay. And I devoured the Bitcoin standard. And I devoured the bullish case for Bitcoin to if anyone's listening to this and they don't know anything about Bitcoin uh, and they're looking for somewhere to get started, I'd probably recommend read uh, the article. It's actually now a book. I don't know if this podcast is going to be video or not, but uh, if it is video, people will see I'm holding it up. I actually have a signed copy from DJ. It's a book now, but you can get it on Medium. It's it's an article called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. It's an amazing introduction to like what Bitcoin is, why is it important, and what problem does it solve, et cetera. And then the Bitcoin standard is like similar idea, but it goes a lot more in depth. Hmm. And so I devoured those two books. And then that was when I became obsessed. And then really ever since then, I've thought about Bitcoin for a majority of the day, every single day. And yeah, and company line tutors until full time until uh, this December, I came on board to, for, as director of education for Crypto Academy. And now I'm doing this full time and I'm absolutely loving it. Easily the best decision I've ever made. So. I'm guessing like most people, if you ask, like for you, you have some similar a scam, hmm, still think it's a scam, but something's interesting. Holy shit, this thing is really important and really special. That's usually what uh, I hear from people. In, in my case, I, I saw a lot of people that I look up to, the people I respect in the industry, be it some of the leading thinkers and authors, they started speaking about this years back. And I felt this is something that I don't understand. This is something which is beyond my understanding. So I never paid attention then. Uh, it was one of those things that you let it pass as a technology advanced thing. Like people who are in the world of technology, they get it, but this is not for the normal people. So I, I gave it a pass then. Then obviously, uh, as the industry had momentum in that space, then I paid attention and you know I was like looking into it. And then I discovered, wow, this is like another world altogether. So that's been my case. But yeah, really interesting. Uh, so I want to ask you a follow-up question to that. So you finished your education and you went on to start your own company, which is which is not the norm that people really go and do a nine to five or get into some kind of a job. So what triggered you to really do your own stuff from the beginning? What's the thinking or the mindset behind that? Yeah, that's also a good question. I think mostly I'm like incredibly disagreeable pretty well. <laughs> I'm just, a, I'm like a highly disagreeable person. I'm in like the 90% like the person personality trait being very agreeable or on the other spectrum, uh, side of the spectrum being disagreeable. I'm like as disagreeable as they become. And so like my default for everything is whatever the consensus is or the direction in which people are moving, I like to just do the opposite. And so I've always been like that. Study finance in college, did a wealth management type internship after my sophomore year. So I was working in a wealth manager's office. It was really what the guy did was sales. He, he sold financial products to people. Like he wasn't a fiduciary. He was selling products. That was okay, whatever. After my junior year, I did an internship at a consulting company. It's actually one of the big four, PwC. I worked there. I hated it. I was like on a plane every Monday, um, on a plane every Thursday, going back and forth to New York City to Salt Lake. And then in college, my freshman year, I started working for this company, Lion Tutors. And so it's a collegiate level education company. What they basically did was exam reviews for college students. So at Penn State, there's 15 classes or so where there's like a thousand people in the class. It's usually like three sections of 300 people. And you're in these usually in, in, in the fall semester, really super hot and stuffy lecture halls. And it's like impossible to pay attention. And most people totally dish class altogether. And so basically what we did at Lion Tutors is we developed these uh, exam reviews and practice exams. And we said, hey, look, this is exactly what you need to know for the exam. You know, this is how professors test this stuff. Here's the most efficient way to study. And that's basically what the business was. 
And so it was an existing business when I came to Penn State. They started in 2008. I was a freshman there in 2011. I was a customer in like my first few weeks, met the owners who are now like some of my best friends and mentors, and I worked in there my freshman year. And so I worked there all throughout college. And then in the process of working there, I was having conversations with who's now, again, like I said, one of my best friends, this guy called Josh. And he's basically saying, hey, look, like, we can expand this business. We can have this business at 10, 15, 20, 30 locations all across the country in the United States. And so I always had that in my head. And then so after I did this, kind of both of these internships and totally hated them, I was like, Wes, I feel like I want to start a company regardless. Talked with them and I decided kind of then that's what I was going to do. And then, so that, that was the business I started. So it's actually an existing business. And what we attempted to do is basically do a proof of concept that would show that we can franchise this thing across the country. And then our goal was to franchise it. Ended up actually not working out. The location that we chose, the location that we chose was like sixth or seventh on the list of the best potential places because we wanted to show potential franchisees and investors like, hey, we did it here. This is not nearly the best place. We have this list of five or six or seven places where it would be better. And it just fell short. Like the business just didn't work. We gave it a really uh, tough shot. We all lost a bunch of money. We all, we, we invested really heavily and we said, we're going to do this. We're going to give it a try. And it, it just didn't work. Like that happened. Most businesses fail, wow. uh, but we still had the Penn State business. And so I came back to the Penn State business and I was leaving that company for, it was like three years. And then, then I left uh, last December. And so I learned a ton, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's basically it. I'm just really disagreeable and I like doing what I want to do. And that's what I wanted to do. I thought starting a business, super high upside, don't need to listen to anyone, don't need to dress a certain way, <clears throat> don't need to be on someone else's time frame. It just appealed to me. Wow. So when you say you were a very disagreeable person or you are, uh, I'm curious, uh, yeah. is it the same opinion your parents have about you? Yeah. As a kid, like just constantly in trouble. And like, I don't know what they call it. Like basically like as a child, I was always like, why? Why? So we're like, you can't do that. Why? You can't do it because of issues. But, but why now? And it, and it drove my parents crazy. Same with teachers, all of that stuff. It's just how I've always been. I think it's like, I think it's like an inherent part of my personality. And if you look at, um, like Jordan Peterson's written a bit about this. And I think he actually has, I think that's the personality test that I took. But there's others out there with just that's a personality trait is how, are you on the agreeable side of the spectrum or the disagreeable <laughs> side? And I think some people are just inherently disagreeable. And so it was always in my view, like a bad thing. Like it always ended up kind of getting me in more trouble than it helped me. But in these past two years, it's been an incredibly helpful thing for me because I think a lot of people made really poor decisions. I don't think we necessarily need to get into the specifics unless you want to, but that weren't in their best interest, but because they were uncomfortable with disagreeing with people. They just went along with the herd and did things that were against what they believed in, but it was just easier or whatever. And so for a lot of this stuff in the past two years, just with COVID and the reaction to COVID and the hysteria and everything, I was like, no, fuck that. It makes no logical sense. Here's why. And I was just so used to that because that's just always how I've been. So I think it was helpful, which, which is just interesting how, uh, how some things work out like that. No, I, th I think that's a really interesting point of view because, yeah, most of us are with the herd mentality and then we just follow the crowd and nobody questions the, every, everybody thinks that is the conventional wisdom and that's what it says. Uh, so why question it? It must be true. So I think, yeah, it, it was a wake up call. I think the last two years, a lot of things got disrupted and people had to really pause and think, hey, what's happening? 
I have followed everything by the book and nothing seems to be working. I think mm-hmm. it's it's good to have um, people like yourself who really challenge the norm and ask questions which are uncomfortable and disagreeable. That's great. Yeah, and and I think so. If you look at Bitcoiners and the people, especially early Bitcoiners, like I was nowhere near early, but if you look at people who are paying attention to Bitcoin in 2011 or 2012 even, 2013, 2014, um, there are certain types of people. Like in the very beginning, they were mostly like anarchists or libertarians or computer scientists. Mm. That was in the beginning. But then the next wave was just more of these people that were misfits, didn't fit in anywhere necessarily in society. And so if you were to survey Bitcoiners as a group, there's no Bitcoin community, at least I don't think so. But people who were interested in Bitcoin and would identify as being a Bitcoiner, I would say that they would be like probably a significantly uh, a higher kind of disagreeable uh, than, than the normal population. And so like we can talk about it, but like when you start thinking about Bitcoin, you start trying to figure out what Bitcoin is, like the only way to do it is to essentially drop everything that you think you know and relearn everything from the ground up mm. the first principle. That's the only way to do it properly. And basically, in order to do that, you need to be pretty disagreeable and you need to be kind of willing to admit, like, maybe I don't think I know everything that I think I know. Mm. And so what we see is that people who the system has worked for them so people who came from like an upper middle class family, they went to a good college, maybe they got an MBA somewhere, and now they're, say, working in an investment bank. They never, ever want to talk about Bitcoin. They don't even want to consider it because what that would do is essentially everything that they've spent their entire life working on, It'll disrupt they that. need to reconsider whether that's actually true or not. Right. And I think that's Bitcoiners is a very diverse group of people, but in terms of like personality traits, uh, they tend to have a lot in common. That's true, man. So just uh, moving on to the next one, which is we talk about Bitcoin and blockchain, uh, which provides a completely new approach to a payment. And, and there are some new words when we speak about this space, which emerges. So just for the benefit of everybody, we'll just try explaining these words and paint a picture for that so that when we use it in the future part, it makes sense. So we have words like blockchain, we have hash rate, we have Bitcoin mining, uh, we have private keys, we have wallet. So th- these are things people hear it in different contexts. Could you just help us a little bit with w- what's blockchain or w- what are these words, hash rate and mining? Yeah. Um, I-, I know it's a, it's a broad topic. To okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And so basically, let's just think about what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is just a piece of software. Bitcoin is just a computer program that anyone can run on their computer. Hmm. Blockchain is the way that it's achieved. You can think of a blockchain as um, you can think of it as a distributed ledger that exists on a bunch of computers all over the place. Those computers where the distributed ledger that we call the blockchain exists, in Bitcoin land, we call them nodes. And so basically a node is just a computer that's running a copy of this Bitcoin blockchain. And the blockchain is really just a ledger. And we call it a distributed ledger because the ledger exists on all of these different computers that are located everywhere. There's 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 of these independent nodes existing everywhere. And the reason that blockchain is important is because basically blockchain is just one component of Bitcoin. It's basically we have, let's talk about some of these terms. We have the blockchain, which is a data structure. We have uh, digital signatures, which are built on cryptography. Uh, And then we have kind of these hashing algorithms, which are also built on cryptography. And these kind of all put together is what makes up Bitcoin. And all of these kind of things that, for the most part, already existed 
this pseudonymous person called Satoshi Nakamoto. Nobody knows who they are. Mm -hmm. They put them together and then in 2009 released the Bitcoin white paper. And so Bitcoin is really just a collection of these innovations when all put together, it solves something that we call the double spend problem. Uh, and it's like the key, the key innovation for a problem that cryptographers and, and in this group that we call the cypherpunks were trying to solve for 40 years. Like people were trying to figure out decentralized digital currency for almost 40 years. Satoshi Nakamoto is just the person or the group, nobody knows who they are, that kind of broke through with this innovation. Some people might call it an invention. Some people might call it a discovery, but it's a very big breakthrough. Uh, it's a computer science breakthrough. It's an economics breakthrough. It's many different things. In my view, it's probably the most important innovation or discovery or invention in the last century or more. I think it's I think it's in line with the internet and the printing press and innovations at that scale. It's something that, in my view, and if you talk about why, is really important. But basically, all Bitcoin is a computer program that runs on a distributed network of nodes that are located all over the place. And what this allows for is it creates a system that requires no trusted third party. So you can use Bitcoin in a peer-to-peer -peer way with no censorship and without the need for any trusted third party intermediary. So it's the only time that this has ever been true in the digital realm. So if you think about the physical realm, if I wanted to give you a piece of gold and gold was used as money for 5,000 years or more, right. I can give you gold. And then once you have it, I don't have it anymore mm. because it's physical. There is no double spend problem, mm. but in the digital realm, the only thing that exists is information and information you can replicate at zero marginal cost. Mm. And so it was really hard to have something like money in the digital realm, because who's to say that I give you one digital coin but then I turn around and give it to someone else, that would be the double spend problem. Right. And so what blockchain, really Bitcoin, this innovation that is Bitcoin blockchain being one of the components that led to the innovation uh, allowed for is it solved this double spend problem and it allowed us to have decentralized censorship resistant peer-to-peer -peer money in the digital world. And, and it's an amazing thing. And it's really, and if you think about just what's happened in the past two weeks globally, mm -hmm. it's the biggest advertisement ever. Bitcoin has no CEO. It has no centralized marketing department and it doesn't need it because it's such a unique and important innovation. So just really quickly, if you think about two big things that have happened, we're recording this, what is it, March 10th, 2022. Right. If we think about two, two, two big things that happened in the past two or three weeks, well, we had the Canadian trucker freedom convoy, mm. okay? And so a bunch of truckers basically were protesting against the vaccine mandates. They felt that they shouldn't need to uh, take a vaccine if they didn't want to, and they needed to cross the border. And so they protested against it. As a reaction, Justin Trudeau started freezing his own citizens' bank accounts. Right. And if you were a Canadian citizen and you were involved with the protest, or to some extent, if you just donated to the protest, your bank account, your money, at least what you think is your money, was frozen. You weren't able to move it. You weren't able to withdraw it. You weren't able to send it. That's crazy, man. That's yeah. a big problem. And the, reason that's, and the reason that's possible is because there's a trusted third party there. The, the bank is a trusted third party. They're holding your money on your behalf. Fast forward about a week, we have now this war breaking out between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. What has the U.S. done? They've levied sanctions that are the biggest sanctions, like in line with the sanctions that they imposed on Iran. Which And what's happened is Russia has been 
not to the fullest extent, but to a very large extent, removed from SWIFT, which is basically like the way that banks communicate with one another. If you remove uh, a member, from, they basically are cut off from the global financial world. Mm. And so that's like the most harsh sanction, uh, from the financial sanction perspective that you can do. Why are they able to do that? Because the U.S. controls the global reserve currency, the U.S. dollar. And so like these two problems are really big problems. And Bitcoin not only fixes those problems, it fixes it perfectly. It makes it so that both of those situations in the Bitcoin system are completely impossible because it's the censorship resistant, seizure resistant, digital bearer asset. I think those are some really big problems, which amplifies what is the flaw existing in the current system, really. So, uh, yeah, one of the follow-up questions I wanted to get into, and you still have to get back to what is mining and what is those other terms, but uh, what is the core you problem? You hit those real quick, just so we don't get uh, sidetracked okay, again. Sure. I can do it in a few seconds. So we talked about what a node is, and it's basically just a computer that's running the Bitcoin software that keeps its own copy of the ledger. Uh, a node's job is to communicate with other nodes and to verify transactions. Miners are, it's technically they're a type of node, but what miners are responsible for is actually batching uh, Bitcoin transactions into what we call blocks and then broadcasting them out into the network. And so we talked a little bit about thinking from first principles, and I'm a believer that it's important to, instead of always reasoning by analogy, to try to understand things from first principles. But a lot of times, reasoning by analogy is a good step to totally understanding something from first principles. Right. So I think an analogy is really helpful for people here. A really good analogy is what miners are doing is they're putting together, imagine it like a, a pretty challenging uh, jigsaw puzzle. Hmm. It would require a lot, a lot of, if you're just an individual putting together a jigsaw puzzle, it would take a lot of time and energy to put it together. So you can think of miners, they're like putting this puzzle together. But once someone's completed a jigsaw puzzle, in a second, you can verify, yeah, that jigsaw puzzle is done correctly or it's not done correctly. That's what the nodes are doing. So the miners are essentially batching transactions and the way that miners kind of are determined who, who has the right to put a transaction into a block and who doesn't, they do it by solving these complex cryptographic puzzles and that's what the mining process is. And so their miners are essentially batching these transactions into blocks. The nodes are just verifying does that block that the miner just broadcast, does it abide by the network rules or not? Uh, and the reason that mining is so important, and particularly what we call this is proof-of-work mining, is, is it's the only connection between the physical realm and the digital. Because mining requires energy, it's the incentive that we have in place to make sure that miners aren't cheating. Because if you were to include invalid transactions in a block, it would be rejected by all of the nodes on the network. Mm. And so you wouldn't be able to include that block and you wouldn't be able to put it in, out into the network. And so you would have wasted energy and essentially wasted the money associated with that energy. And so proof of work is really the only way that we know as of right now to tie the physical realm to the digital realm. And it's what allows for Bitcoin scarcity and a bunch of other uh, important things. Cool. And when we speak about mining, the incentive that these miners get is the Bitcoin in itself. That's the whole uh, game, right? Correct. Yeah. And so if you are lucky enough to basically, really what miners are doing is they're looking for uh, a really small number. And if you kind of find a number below the difficulty adjustment, and we can talk about that too if we want, uh, you're rewarded with the privilege of being able to put transactions into the next block. And so every time that a miner, quote, finds a block, and it's just probabilistic. So imagine there's X amount of total hash rate on the Bitcoin network, and a miner has some percentage of it, 
probabilistically, they're likely to find a block that often. That's basically the way that it works. And so if you are lucky enough to find a block, you get what's called the block reward. And the block reward is comprised of two components. The first is basically the, the amount of Bitcoin that you get, which at, right now is 6.25 Bitcoin. But then you're also entitled to transaction fees. Right now, the, the Bitcoin that you're rewarded, the 6.25, makes up for like a large majority of the total reward. But over time, because of this thing called the having event, which we can talk about, it's weird, not in a structured way to right, that's, talk that's, about that's all cool. this. That's okay. Yeah, basically over time, the amount of Bitcoin that's rewarded is going to get smaller and smaller. It's going to be cut in half approximately every four years. And so it asymptotically approaches zero. And eventually, uh, it will be no more. That will happen in like 2140. So a very long time from now. And then over time, transaction fees are going to account for a larger and larger portion of the total amount that uh, miners are rewarded. And yeah, you're right. That's the incentive for people to do this, right? Because right. it's expensive. You need to go out and buy very specialized hardware, what we call ASICs, mm. application-specific integrated circuit. And then you need to pay for energy. Some people have access to really cheap energy. Others don't have access to cheap energy. Right. Um, and so it's really expensive to mine. So they're doing it. The reason that they're incentivized to do that is for this reward that's paid in Bitcoin. So it's also uh, the reason that mining is important is it's the way that new Bitcoin come onto the network. It's essentially the way that new Bitcoin are created. And that's where the name comes from. It's like equivalent to gold mining. Right. I think the challenge with this topic is every time we dive deep uh, into the world of blockchain and in the world of Bitcoin, the more you read, the more you actually understand there is so much more to really understand. That's like a, each topic really goes deeper and deeper. Yeah. So I get it. When you touch upon certain words, we really cannot, <laughs> no, we don't have the time to really get into each one of them because it is, it in itself is a whole segment. So uh, Exactly. And like, I think that's the beauty of what we're doing with, with the training program that we have is it basically allows us in a structured way mm. to start from their very basics and then build upon it. If you're just having a casual conversation like this and if you don't have any visual prompts too it is tough and so i think hopefully you agree that's one of the things that we do really is we take the very basic layer lay it down then we build upon it then we build upon it then we build upon it but it takes a really long time and that's why bitcoin is such a it's something that people like me get so obsessed with because it's a never-ending pursuit like you can think of it as there is no end to the bitcoin rabbit Right. I heard you a couple of times during our conversation using the word first principles. Would you help uh, the audience understand what do you mean by first principles? Yeah, it's basically questioning your assumptions and starting from the very base or asking yourself the question like, what do I know for absolute certain to be true? Mm. And so the reason that I use the word first principles is because that's what Bitcoin taught me how to do. Before I started studying Bitcoin, I didn't even understand the concept of thinking from first principles or kind of another way to think of it is like when people say think for yourself, mm. like what that is, is like a casual way of saying think from first principles. And I studied finance in college and basically you learn whatever your professors are teaching you from the textbook. And the textbooks, especially in economics and then finance is related to economics pretty directly, you're studying like one kind of area or field in economics called Keynesian economics, which is based on a certain set of assumptions. There's a whole entirely different field of economics and a whole entirely different way of thinking called Austrian economics. And a lot of Bitcoiners are, are pretty into Austrian economics and uh, kind of the set of assumptions that 
kind of Austrian economics is built upon is completely different than Keynesian economics. So they're basically on the other side of one another. And so basically like studying finance in college and just being a nerd and constantly reading the Wall Street Journal and reading a bunch of kind of traditional finance textbooks, like I thought I knew a lot. Mm. When you start studying Bitcoin, you realize that most of the things that you think you actually don't have a first principles grounding in. You don't actually, you can't actually build it from the very base up. You learn stuff, you memorize some things, you use some examples that worked for you, you reason by analogy, but you don't actually understand it from its very base. And so the way I think of it, at least, is thinking from first principles is anytime that you're approaching a topic, you start and you say, okay, what do I know for absolute certain to be true? Okay, it's this. If that thing is true, this thing also must be true. And rebuilding the blocks from the base. And then, so like a lot of the people that I really admire, Pomp is a really good example. And Anthony Pompliano, some people may know him, some people might not. That's who I work with in the crypto academy. Like what he's really good at doing, and you see him as there's a problem, and he'll start from, okay, this thing is true, which means we should approach it this way, which means that we should approach it this way. Um, and so it's just basically a fancy way, honestly. Uh, it's like somewhat of a pretentious way to say, think for yourself. So, you know, and, and I think uh, one of the things that we talked about is what's some good advice that you received. And so I was thinking about it. And most of the advice that I've received in my life is complete dog shit. Like it's horrible advice. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for give an example. Thanks for, just when I was going to go and start my career by taking a bunch of risks, almost everyone told me, no. You've worked so hard, you should go and you should work for this corporation because it's safe and you shouldn't do that. And kind of things like that along the way where, yeah, for most people, what they were saying is probably good advice, but it's definitely not good advice all the way across the board. The one piece of advice that I've gotten is think for yourself. And not only that, learn how to think for yourself. And so even if you just, I can't remember, there's a bunch of good stuff out there. If you just Google, like thinking from first principles, there's like frameworks for kind of the thought process of building up your base of knowledge from the very... I think uh, Shane Parrish is quite known for the first principle thinking. And yeah. I think he, he devotes quite a bit it's, of... Yeah, I think that's what I was actually just thinking of. Yeah. So I think you did touch upon the problem or how Bitcoin works. But one of the questions still people ask or they wonder, what is the problem that Bitcoin is trying to solve? You touched upon the centralized approach to finance, right? So is that the only problem that Bitcoin is trying to solve or is there something else which Bitcoin addresses? The, from like a technical perspective, like the technical breakthrough that Bitcoin solved is Satoshi, by inventing or discovering Bitcoin, solved the double spend problem. Mm. So like that is technically the problem that Bitcoin solves. Everything else that it solves is completely downstream. So again, it's a kind of big building on that base. So Bitcoin solved the double spend problem. So before Bitcoin, there was no way that we can have digital scarcity because information can be re replicated infinitely at zero marginal cost. Mm. There was no way to have scarcity in the digital realm. When you start thinking about what makes something good money and you start studying the history of money, uh, so for anyone who's interested in that, the bullish key for Bitcoin is like a very great introduction for the history of money. Mm. Very high level view. If you want to get into a little bit more detail, there's this guy named Nick Saba. He's a cypherpunk, very interesting person. He wrote this piece called uh, Shelling Out, so S-H-E-L-I-N-G Out, uh, and it's a really good and comprehensive history of money. Mm. And so when you think what makes a good money, there are like really six different properties. So we have things like divisibility, portability, fungibility, and one of them is scarcity. 
So for a good money, it needs to be scarce, all right? So this idea of unforgeable costliness. If you have something that isn't scarce, people can just produce a bunch of it, and then it's not useful as money, but you can essentially just create your own money. So something needs to be scarce to be good money. And so by solving the double spend problem, uh, Satoshi was able to create scarcity in the digital realm, which previously wasn't possible. Because we have scarcity in the digital realm, now we can have money in the digital realm. Okay, so we solved the double spend problem, uh, and now we can interact with one another in a peer-to-peer fashion. Meaning, if I want to send you Bitcoin right now, I can literally grab my cell phone, I have some Bitcoin on a hot wallet, you hold up the Bitcoin address, I scan it, and I send you Bitcoin. It goes directly from me, directly to you. There's no third party, so there's no one that can censor that transaction. Let's try that. Um, Let's so try that. Yeah, please go ahead and send me some Bitcoin, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> you, you send me one Bitcoin, I'll send you two back, I promise. All right? Yeah, basically all of the other problems that Bitcoin solves is downstream of this key technical breakthrough where we now solve the double spend problem. So what are what, what is the main uh, problem it solves? Like I said earlier, it provides a censorship resistant, seizureship, uh, seizure resistant, sovereign bearer asset. So what do those things mean? Censorship resistant means that I can send Bitcoin to you directly and there's absolutely no one in the world that can step in and say, no, you cannot send that money to the node. So that's what we mean by censorship resistant. What do I mean by seizure resistant? It means no one can take my Bitcoin from me. Mm. The only way that someone can take my Bitcoin from me is if I give them my seed phrase, which is a mnemonic representation of my private key. And so we can talk a little bit about uh, kind of public and private keys if we want. It gets a little bit into the weeds pretty quickly. Yeah. For, for, for anyone who's listening that's not familiar, basically, if you say that you own Bitcoin, what you really mean is that you have ownership of the private key yeah. that allows you to prove that you have the Bitcoin that you say you have. It allows you to, to sign a transaction with what we call a digital signature. Right. And so just to stay on topic, what I mean by it's uh, seizure resistant is if I have fiat money in a bank account, Stealing that from me is really easy. We just saw Justin Trudeau do it in Canada. We mm. just saw the entire country of the United States do it to this entire cyber nation of Russia. It's really easy to steal fiat money. If I have gold, which is an example of uh, hard money or something that's outside money, it's outside of the fiat system, someone can still steal it from me. And this is what much of history was about, was one group going into another group's territory and killing everyone and stealing their gold. And so you can steal gold very easily with violence. Bitcoin, the only way that someone can take your Bitcoin from you is if you give them your private key. If someone were to come break into my house right now and they said, hey, give me your Bitcoin private key, and I said no, there's really nothing they can do. They can kill me, but if they kill me, they're still not going to get my Bitcoin because they're still not going to know my private key. And so it's impossible to steal, and that's what we mean by seizure resistant. And then a bearer asset. What I mean is, and this is really important, if you think of pretty much all of the assets that exist in the world, pretty much everything besides gold is an asset. If you own the asset, it's someone else's liability. So let's just use bonds for an example. If you own a bond, it's someone else's on someone else's balance sheet, their liability. Mm. So you have an asset, but it's also someone else's liability. And what that exposes you to is something that we call counterparty risk. Okay. Because Bitcoin is a bearer asset like gold. If you think about gold and you own gold, it is no one else's liability. It's yeah. a bearer asset. And so what this means is that Bitcoin has no counterparty risk. There is no counterparty where your asset is their liability. And this is really important because when things start to go awry, 
and the system starts to have issues, like maybe, for example, what we saw in 2008, mm. credit starts to freeze up and things start to go horribly bad, it cascades, and you might think you have X amount of wealth if you store it in the stock market. If you own stocks, that is someone else's liability. Mm. If you have cash, that is the, the, your commercial bank's liability, and then they have liability with the, the central bank. So things start to cascade really quickly, and it gets really messy, and you can have your wealth completely wiped out. With Bitcoin, that's not possible. It's your asset, and it's no one else's liability. Um, and so that's what I mean by a bearer instrument. And, and, and so these, these are the problems that I solve. And I would probably be what maybe people aren't familiar with this term. I would probably identify myself as a Bitcoin maximalist. I don't abide by the re religious ethos. Like speaking about coming from first principles, there are a lot of people who identify themselves as Bitcoiners, or more specifically Bitcoin maximalists, who have adopted a religious ideology, adopted this Bitcoin maximalist set of beliefs, and they're out there espousing those things, but they've never actually, for themselves, thought about why they do that. They're essentially repeating what other people are saying. There's definitely a huge subset of these people, and so I don't want to associate myself with them. What I, what I mean when I say I'm a Bitcoin maximalist is... Um, the way I think of the world is there's Bitcoin, which is this super important, once in, in my opinion, once in a multi-century innovation, and then there's everything else in the crypto world. And I, I think that Bitcoin is, is really important, and that's where I focus all of my energy on for a subset of reasons that we can talk about if we want. I think a lot of the rest of the crypto world is, is not as important or it's not as big of an innovation in my view. So I forget where I was going with that, but... Yeah, so now all my, you know, audience who subscribe to other coins, they're going to just unsubscribe. Just kidding, yeah. <laughs> nah, they won't because they fell in love with their, they fell in love with their dog coin or their ass coin or whatever they, they bought and tried to speculate on. By the way, so uh, what are the top three things people misunderstand about Bitcoin? Like that most commonly misunderstood concepts oh. about Bitcoin. I forgot what I was saying. You just reminded me. So where I was, when I went on the Bitcoin maximalist tangent, what I was going to say was people will be like, I see that Bitcoin is really good as a store of value. And it may be used as, when people say it, it may be used as money one day, what they're referring to is as a medium of exchange, mm. which is just one of the three com components of, of money. So if you think about historically, when a good becomes monetized, there's kind of four stages. The first is people see it as a collectible. So gold is a good example. Like people would be like, wow, this is a really interesting rock. It seems like there's not much of it around. They just kept it around because it was cool. Next stage is it's a store of value. After that, it starts being used as a medium of exchange. After something is widely used as a medium of exchange, then people start using it as a unit of account. That's basically unit of account is what you price things. And so I think people have, don't, a lot of people don't understand that. They go, okay, I see that Bitcoin's a good store of value, mm. but I don't, you can't do smart contracts and you can't do NFTs on the Bitcoin base layer and there's no doubt on Bitcoin. Like, isn't all of this other stuff way more interesting? And like, my response to that is having a censorship resistant, bearer instrument that no one can steal from you is the most important thing ever. Like you, like smart contracts or being able to have to own a, a picture of a, a monkey JPEG is like the smallest thing ever in comparison to the innovation that Bitcoin is. And so, and so that's basically what a lot of people say is I see that it's good as a store of value, but what else? No, there is no one else. Like the fact that, that this is an innovation at the scale is like the biggest. So what are some other misconceptions that people have about Bitcoin? There's a whole bunch of them. Let's go through a few of them. Yeah. Uh, mostly uh, used by two, criminals. Top two or top three. Yeah. 
Yeah. So there's, I think government will ban it is a big one. Yeah. Just yesterday, I believe it was, President Biden came out with an executive order on cryptocurrencies. And basically what the executive order says, I haven't read the whole thing. It basically says that like I'm ordering uh, these government uh, bodies, these regulatory agencies to basically study Bitcoin more and cryptocurrency and, and Congress. So it's an indication that they're not interested in banning it. They're interested, interested in making sure that Americans can use this to innovate. So government will ban it is a, is a really big, but it's not backed by anything. Is a, a big one. It's just wrong. The Bitcoin network is the most powerful computing network in the world. So if it did need to be backed by anything, it's backed by that. But money doesn't need to be backed by anything. Money is money because of its monetary properties, because it's superior on characteristics like scarcity, fungibility, divisibility, portability. It doesn't need anything backing it. The only reason that people think that we need something to back our money is because they're so used to fiat money, mm. which is basically worthless pieces of paper that were historically backed by gold or now backed by what? The full faith and credit, whatever government. But if we have something that is free market money and it's decided on by the free market to be money, it doesn't need to be backed by anything. The thing that backs it is it's the best good and it's the most saleable good in the market. It's the best thing that you can use as money. So that's, that's valuable in and of itself. True. I think those are two big ones that you stated. Uh, speaking about money also, yeah. it reminds me, we were talking about Bitcoin has a limitation. There's only 21 million units which can be you know, mined by 2040. When it comes to money, governments are able to print money. And when you start talking about printing money, what seems to be the problem? Like, why is there is a challenge in the economy? You know, governments will print money. So isn't that a good thing? It's necessary. So basically, like saying that the central bank being able to print money is, in my view, the same thing as saying it's good that an arsonist is also a firefighter because without them, there would be no one to put out the fire. It's, yeah, it, it, if an arsonist does start a fire, we would prefer to have a fireman that can put out the fire. And so that's the same situation that we find ourselves in in central banking is, again, in my view, and this is not uh, outside of Bitcoin, it's not a super widely held view. The problem is where we find ourselves. The fact that like the global debt to GDP ratio is around 400%, meaning that there's five times as much debt as is their total global production in the world right now. That's a problem that was initially caused by central banks and more broadly fiat money. When we were on the gold standard, there was some monetary discipline. We had a fractional reserve system, meaning that central banks printed more money, uh, more kind of claims on gold than physical gold that exists. But there was at least some sense of discipline. Since we went off the gold standard fully in the U.S. in, in 1971, we were on this. Uh, so we went fully off the gold standard. There is no sense of discipline, and, and governments have printed money ad nauseum. They printed a ton and ton of money. And it's caused a bunch of issues, that amongst other things. And now we find ourselves in a situation where interest rates are at the lower bound. They're basically at zero. And so governments are in a position where they don't really have many options left if we find ourselves in a scenario where the uh, economy starts to end up in the downturn and we are looking at a recession. Historically, uh, what they would do is they would manipulate interest rates. If it looked like we were entering a recessionary period, uh, they would reduce interest rates. And they would, they would go into how they would do that. 
But now interest rates are really at this lower zero bound. So once interest rates are so low, the next thing that they can do is something called quantitative easing, which is essentially money printing. And money printing is a bad thing for people who don't own assets. Because if you think about it, if you're in the bottom 45% of Americans who own no investable assets, so 45% of all Americans, and I'm sure it's true, or probably even higher in, in many other countries, right. you own no investable assets, meaning that you're essentially living paycheck to paycheck, and any wealth that you have stored up is in cash. So money printing causes inflation. There are other factors, but in my view, money printing is the primary driver of inflation. And so you essentially... The amount of real goods that exist in the economy is the same, but there are now X amount more currency units there for the same amount of real goods. Right. The only option for the market to end up back at equilibrium is the price of everything needs to go up, and that's what we call inflation. And so inflation is simply just another form of taxation, because if you think about the way that a government can fund itself, it can fund itself directly through taxation. So basically like having a balanced budget, they bring in money through taxation and they spend money. But if they're spending more than they are bringing in through taxes, they need to print money. Essentially, what we see happening now where they're like monetizing the debt. And so inflation is just another form of taxation, because if the government, say, takes 40 percent of all the money that you make between federal and state and local taxation and everything like that, but then the price of everything around you is going up by 20%. It's just another form of taxation. The government is funding itself through inflation. And so inflation is a problem mostly for people who don't own any investable assets. And what most people are focused on is consumer price inflation. And today in the U.S., consumer, the CPI number came out, and it was 7.9%, meaning year over year, the price of the basket of goods, there's an issue with the way they calculate the basket. We don't need to talk about that has gone up 7.9%. And so what that means for people is if they are only holding cash and if they haven't gotten a raise for their job, they are essentially 8% less wealthy than they were one year ago. Mm -hmm. So unless you've gotten an 8% raise or you have your money earning more than 8% interest somewhere, you are becoming poorer. That's and so people with right. investable assets, exactly. And so people with investable assets all of this money printing, because as we've seen with the stock market, it increases dramatically the value of scarcer assets like uh, stocks and real estate. And so what it really does is it hurts poor people. And if you look at the return of like the S&P 500, if you use that as like a proxy for overall stock market returns, and you look at it priced in dollars, it's like a 45 degree angle. It's mm. basically just going up, up and to the right. We have an average compound annual growth rate in the stock market of say 8% a year. But if you do the same thing, but instead of using dollars as your unit of account, if you use gold, it's basically completely flat. It's actually going down a little bit. And so everybody, in the U.S. at least, and here in India, the way I'm phrasing things is pretty U.S.-centric, so apologies for that for anyone who isn't from the U.S., but basically what's happening here is everyone who owns, who owns assets feels like they're becoming more wealthy because their stock portfolios are returning 20% and their, their homes are becoming 20% more valuable. But if you use a house, for example, it's the same house. And so in, unless there's some significant amount of expansion in the area or for some reason the house itself became more valuable, the price of your house going up, that isn't your house becoming more valuable. It's mm. the unit of account that we use in, in, in the U.S., the dollar, actually being devalued. And yeah. so this is why inflation is a problem, right? And basically people saying, and like this is a really, I wouldn't even call this a misconception. People saying in a Bitcoin world, thinking 100 years in the future, let's say, 
when there's some type of economic uh, crisis, the central bank won't be able to print money, and that would be an issue. And kind of the counter argument to that is going from a fiat system to like a hyper Bitcoinized world where Bitcoin is the global based money instead of treasury bills or bonds, it's going to be really ugly. But once we are in a Bitcoin system, which any transition is always ugly and usually pretty, pretty nasty, people will have the ability to save because the money will actually hold value because there's some scarcity to it. Mm. It can't be devalued through money printing and inflation. And what that will encourage people to do is actually build up a capital base through saving. And so if something bad happens in the economy, people will have savings in which they can draw from. Whereas in the fiat system where we, where, where we currently operate, not only is the incentive not to save, because if inflation is 8% and you have all of your money stored in cash, you're really becoming 8% less wealthy in purchasing power terms. You're actually incentivized to borrow as much as possible, right? Because if the interest rate where you're borrowing is 4%, and inflation is 8%, yeah. you're actually essentially in real terms getting paid to borrow money. And so people borrow up to their eyeballs, including corporations, and kind of everything is backwards. And so I'm not saying that this would happen like right away. Any transition at the kind of level of magnitude where we're talking about is really ugly and it sucks for pretty much everyone involved. But on the other side of it, if we were back on a hard money standard, like we were with gold for 5,000 years, people would actually be able to accumulate capital. And they would have savings to pass along to the next generation. And then they would be able to build up more capital. And, and, and the world would have a capital base again. So when there are downturns, you can just draw from your capital base. If you're making investments, instead of borrowing money, you draw from the capital base. And, and risk is not perverted. And there are real interest rates. And again, everything downstream from that. I think yeah, I think that was quite, quite a detailed explanation on how, how the economy works when we speak about inflation. Now shifting gears, I want to understand a little bit more about you. So first question, how would your parents describe what you do? If we were to ask your parents. God, my mom would probably say he teaches people stuff about some internet money <laughs> is probably what she would say. Like I said, my dad's a, a lifelong Wall Street guy. He'd probably say Bitcoin's a scam or something. <laughs> probably a reaction along those two uh, would, would be most accurate. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, who has been the most uh, influential person in your life and how have they impacted you, your life, outside of maybe your dad and mom? Yeah, my fiance for sure. Mm. Her, but besides that, me. <laughs> <laughs> and like I said, uh, no, nah, there's been a lot of people about me. Definitely my parents, definitely my fiance. She straightened my ass out. Um, I've had some amazing mentors, like the people I mentioned earlier from Lion Tutors. They've been amazing friends. So yeah, I've had a lot of people that have done like incredibly awesome things for me. Cool. And I know that you are heavy into books and uh, a lot of podcasts and stuff like that. What are some of the books that has uh, shaped your thinking and the most actually? And any specific takeaways that you remember from the books? Yeah, definitely. So the interesting thing about me is like a lot of people are like a lot of like really smart people and have just like a lot of like mental horsepower. Like their brains just work really well in an IQ sense. Like they just have IQs that are very high. I am not in that era. Like I was very average, if anything, a little bit below IQ, just from a pure IQ perspective. But I've always been obsessed with reading. I spend most of my day either reading or listening to podcasts or listening to books. Hours, four to five to six hours a day. And I've done that forever. And so I'm actually pretty slow. Like I, I tutor math for many years and I'm horrible at math, but 
one of the reasons I'm actually good at teaching math because I'm someone who's bad at math mm. and I know how it feels like a dumb person to figure out math. It's like the one thing that I feel like has been like the message is like I've always been obsessed with reading since I was a little kid. So books are like really important to me. And so it's always hard to say like one book or something. So I have a trick where I always make sure that I'm reading one uh, non-Bitcoin book, not oh, yeah. a Bitcoin, non-economic book. So because otherwise I only consume Bitcoin content and there's so much good stuff that's pr- produced. And so like the book that I'm rereading right now that I come back to like once a year is Atomic Habits by James Clear. Most people are familiar with that book at this point. It's a masterpiece in terms of just making sure that your habits and your routines and things that you do on a daily basis are working for you, not against you. He has like a journal that accompanies the book and I'm going back through that. And it's a really good audiobook and it's just something that like I revisit like once a year. I think it's like my third time through or maybe and it's always just like very straightforward but really good reminders of the shit that you need to do to continue being productive. So that's my non-Bitcoin one. Right. For anyone that is interested in maybe going a little bit down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, there are like so many good books. I would probably say that the the Bitcoin, the bullish case for Bitcoin mm. by BJ Boyapati, really good place to start. Right. From there, I would check out the Bitcoin standard by Safedine Moose. It is uh, not for everyone, for sure. Safedine as a person is not for everyone. I personally love him. I think he's an incredibly intelligent guy, but he has some, some unique views. But I think from a perspective of like understanding why Bitcoin is important and understanding the history of money and kind of like getting an overall view of, hey, is this something that I think I might be interested in or not? Uh, the Bitcoin standard is like a really good place to start. Assuming that you feel like Bitcoin is something that you want to learn more about, there's a book, it's relatively new, and the author was previously relatively unknown. It's called The Seventh Property, and it's by this guy called Eric, yeah, his, his name is Eric Yates. And it's a very kind of the stuff that we casually talked about before. What is a node? What are digital signatures? What is mining? What is the public and private key? It goes into that in detail. And so basically the way the book is arranged is like the first half of the book is about our fiat system and the way that central banking works. And then the second half is all about Bitcoin. And it's like, these are the ins and outs of how the current system works. These are all the ins and outs of how the, the old system works. So it's really good. Just it's not it's definitely not a textbook, but it's more textbooky kind of step by step rather than right. a narrative driven like, like the Bitcoin standard. And then so like pretty much all of my other favorite books are all Bitcoin related books. So we can talk about more of them if you want. The next book that I'm going to read is um, I can't even remember the name. I just downloaded it on Kindle that I'm really excited about. If it comes back to me, I will I'll get it. But it's my next non-Bitcoin book. Because oh, I've okay. got to make sure that I have one of those going because otherwise it's just only Bitcoin all day. For sure. And uh, what has been the best advice that you have received? It could be anything, fitness, life, relationship, that has had the you know biggest impact of sorts. Yeah, I think being constantly reminded about like the importance of thinking logically, thinking for yourself, thinking for first principles. Like that's a reminder that I need pretty often that people around me luckily give. Another one is just like the importance of discipline and not making excuses and identifying with the person that you essentially want to be. So a good example is when your alarm goes off really early in the morning and you got to get up and go to the gym and you have that split second decision, should I sleep in? And you convince yourself, I deadlifted yesterday and I'm, I'm actually sore and I didn't eat enough. 
like discipline be like, no, I am not the per- type of person that sleeps in and then continuously repeating that until you become that person. And now I'm just like, I'm just not a person who sleeps, just not something that's even in my repertoire of behavior. So dis- that's discipline. And then I think some that I've really been exploring and thinking about and writing about for myself lately is how do I say it in a politically correct way? I think, uh, so I think the importance of kind of knowing who you are and then having your values aligned accordingly. So I think for a while there, um, for the past year or so, with my previous business, I was coasting, making a really good amount of money, didn't have to work very much, spending a lot of time reading, which I really enjoy, spending a lot of time exercising, spending a lot of time cooking, which I all really enjoy. There's something missing. Ever since I started taking on a lot more challenges again, because up until that point, I was constantly challenging myself, putting myself way outside of my comfort zone. Mm. And then I had this period where I was like um, prioritizing happiness Mm. over uh, challenging myself and getting shit done and trying to build something. And I think I'm the type of person where for me to be truly fulfilled, I need to be really pushing myself as hard as I can. And I think as someone who... I want to have kids sometime soon. I want to build a family. I want to build a life. Like that needs to be my focus. And I don't, I realize I don't want to take my foot off the pedal just yet or for a while. And so I think it's the advice of some people are going to be cool with just like sitting on a beach and hanging out and they have some money flying in and that's fine. Or like other people are just never going to be satisfied with that no matter what and figuring out the type of person you are. And so I think it's, that's just life experience. Like I tried that, thought it'd be awesome. Wasn't for me for whatever reason. And, no, no. That, that's a great answer, man. I think uh, a lot of people really are... Uh, yeah, it's hard to phrase. And that's, right. that's why I said I'm trying to think about it and write about it more because like, I still don't have a very non-clunky way to express it. But like, it's an important idea. I just need to figure out how to say it properly. No, I do. I do get the essence. I think uh, a lot of us are sometimes climbing the ladder uh, of success and then we re- realize that it is actually leaning against the wrong wall. And then you reach the pinnacle of it and then you wonder what, and then you still feel unsatisfied or unfulfilled. And then you start questioning the yeah. meaning of the whole exercise. So I think it's a very important point. And yeah, something which is not easy to express, but I, I do get the essence of that. So yeah, it's a, a very important area yeah. to focus on. And, yeah, that's where, and just like on the discipline note, one, one more thing I want to say is this is good advice that I give to myself all the time is like, Anytime that I'm not feeling right, whether it's I feel tired or um, like depressed or something along that lines, it usually happens around complaining to my fiance about it in some way. <laughs> and she'll say, she'll say to me, it came out of advice back to me, are you sleeping properly? Are you eating uh, in a disciplined way in the way you should? And are you exercising regularly? Right. And there's really never a scenario where all, and then the fourth is, are you taking 10 minutes to yourself to do whatever it is? Sit in a room by yourself, but if it, whatever, everyone has a different thing. For me, it's been like, if I have those three or four things locked in, it's like pretty freaking hard to be unhappy or depressed. It's just, it's just, I feel awesome all the time and I have boundless energy. And so that's a big one for me. And it's advice that I give to a lot of other people where they're like, I'm just depressed. I don't feel good. It's, hey, are you sleeping eight to nine hours of sleep a night? Are you eating no processed food, no seed oil, no bullshit? Are you lifting a lot of heavy weights? Are you taking a little bit of time for yourself? Journaling is another big one. And the answer is always no. And if you either figure that shit out and then come back to me after doing a discipline for three months or like stop whining. I mean, I think there's not much in between. 100% agree with you on that. I think a, a, a lot of time, and this is maybe again, thinking from first principles, like what's causing you, you know, the trouble. If you look into the basic things, are you eating? Are you sleeping? Are you taking time for yourself? 
I think people don't even pay attention to that. And you know, they're just cribbing about something. Maybe they're just hungry. <laughs> they just need to eat some proper food. Great, great yeah. point. Yeah. So we are in the last segment of the podcast. And uh, here I will give you rapid five questions. You don't have to answer rapidly, but then the questions are in, in sequence one after the other. Okay. Uh, so the first question, uh, what is something new which is happening in your life right now? Yeah, big one for me as I'm moving to Miami. So I'm in Philadelphia in the U.S. right now. I've been here for the past uh, four or five years. And yeah, I'm moving down to Miami next month. Actually, exactly a month from tomorrow. Wow. And so yeah. that's a massive thing. It's chaotic. Everyone who's moved recently like probably has it fresh. Like I have like a list of things that's way longer than I can get to and then trying to do all my work responsibilities. So that's a big thing for me. And it's been incredibly exciting. Uh, and I'm really excited to be in Miami with, it's just a cool place and there's a lot going on. And yeah, that's the big thing for me right now. That's good. In which subject were you best at school? <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> none of them really, to be completely honest. I always got straight A's. <laughs> I was always a really good student, but I never went to class. So I'm always someone, like I said, I've learned from reading. And so if I read something I and I'm interested in it, I'll do fine. Um, so probably in college, it was, it was the business classes, the finance classes I, I excelled in, but younger than that, probably writing English, that, that, that type of subject. But I was a really poor and poorly behaved student, to be completely honest. <laughs> All right, cool. What's the first thing you notice about someone when you meet them? Oh, that's a good question. Wow. The first thing I notice about someone when I meet them that's a really good question. I think, um, gosh, it's intangible, right? Someone's presence, their confidence, the way in which they approach you, the eye contact, the smile. But definitely, I like whatever it is, you make up your mind about someone within like the first two seconds of meeting them. I think that's definitely true. I think the way that you carry yourself is really important. Just people that are being like intentionally nice is a really big thing. That's something I try to do is just like be nice people. It's not something come naturally to me, totally. But yeah, I think just, I guess it would be like the way that a person carries themselves. Does that make sense? Yes. There's probably a better way to answer it, but like, someone's, I guess, someone's... No, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. Like, I think for some people, they just feel the energy of the other person, how they come across. So I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And like the way, like, it's again, not technically politically correct, but like the way that you look, for the most part, not the way that your natural looks are. That's something that's out of your control, but the way that you are dressed, the way that you hold yourself, um, the way that you take care of yourself... It, in my view, it, 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 it's a very good indication of how you feel about yourself. I think some of those more subtle things, like if someone's really, I don't dress nice, I wear a black t-shirt every single day and shorts or jeans. Like it doesn't need to be dressed nice, but did this person put some effort into it? Are they muscular? Are they strong? Posture? Like those little things, I guess, is probably what comprises like how someone carries themselves. Good answer. Good answer. What's a favorite show which is binge worthy? Hmm, binge worthy. Do you watch um, yeah, I do with my fiance. That's, that's kind of it. So, for, actually, one thing that I've watched by myself, which is very rare, is the new Kanye West documentary. I think it's called Genius on Netflix. Oh, cool. Really good. I'm a massive hip hop fan, big fan of Kanye West. And I'm a huge fan of people who like get relentlessly like laser focused and obsessed with something. Hmm. And that's his story. 
So that's how I'm actually watching my own, much more of a podcast. So another example of some story that inspired me like very recently is Joe Rogan had Mr. Beast on, who's like a, a, a YouTuber. He's the biggest, he's the biggest YouTuber. I had no idea who he was though either. He's really popular with 11 to teenage years yeah, old. Yeah. And so he's 23 years old and he's the biggest YouTuber. And he was explaining just like how obsessed he is with making content and building it. And he reinvests all the money that he makes. Uh, and that really inspired me, but that's a podcast. Me and my fiance are watching the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos uh, show. Oh, it's not very, yeah, it's, uh, oh, okay. they're doing it like in an episodic way. It's not very good in terms of the cinematography and the storyline, but it's just a fun, it's like such a fun story that it's fun to watch. Um, uh, but yeah, book? I think, that, yeah, Bad Blood, the book was called. The book is right. really good. It was, yeah, the book uh, is really good. Yeah. It was by the Wall Street Journal guy. But yeah, I think the answer would be that Kanye West documentary has really fired me up. I still got the third one to watch, but the first two are like incredible. It's really good. Awesome. Okay. Have you ever stolen anything? Oh, yeah. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> you want to share? I'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right. If you had to teach one subject, what are you teaching? And I know the obvious answers, but then <laughs> is there anything else that you would? <laughs> it's, it's Bitcoin, man. I have, as you've seen through going through the program, I have a boundless amount of energy for teaching. And I haven't seen myself as teaching. Like I'm, I'm not a technical person. So I, I, I didn't study computer science, cryptography, any of that stuff. And so I see myself as like co-learning with people and having a conversation, but I, I could literally talk about Bitcoin for 13, 14 hours a day, every single day. And I usually do. Oh God. Yeah. I, I trust that. Yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> with, with the same intensity yeah. and passion for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's whack. I, I definitely realize. Have you ever left a one star rating on something? What did you review and why did you rate it that way? That's a good question. I haven't just because I've operated in own businesses before and it sucks so hard when people do that, especially if they're just being an asshole. And so that's something I would never do. But I don't really leave ratings, even good ones. Like sometimes if I'm really compelled that I'll leave like a five-star review, but uh, for the most part, I'm not doing any ratings. But no, definitely. I, I think that's pretty rude, especially to a small business. Right. Extremely rude. Yeah. yeah. Valid point. I think that, that leaves a mark forever, right? Like a bad remark. Like people may read some good reviews about something and then they see one bad remark and that, that stays in the mind sometimes. So it, it has a reputation. Yeah, and if I'm like looking at reviews, I'll usually look at three and four star reviews because those are usually like, if, if it's like a five star, it's usually like the best thing ever. If it's a one star, it's like this thing sucks and it's a scam. So like the three and four star reviews, it's like thoughtful reviews usually. Okay. Do you prefer working remotely or in an office? That's a really good question. I, I like the combination of both. I like the freedom of, of working remotely. So basically like being on my own schedule, like I, I like to pick up and go to the gym whenever I want to go to the gym, whenever I'm feeling it, like throughout the day, having that freedom. So I would never, ever want to like dress up in a suit and drive an hour back and forth each way to work. Like that's not something that's like a possibility. I just wouldn't do it. I'm really excited about moving to Miami. So I can start doing some <clears throat> more in-person collaboration with people because nowadays I'm spending... 12 hours a day on Zoom and it's just, it's exhausting. And so I do like being in person with people and there's definitely a different energy with an in-person conversation. It's just extra like 20%, just connect with the person more, more natural. So okay. yeah, I guess I would summarize. I like the positive aspects of working in person, but like commuting and working in office sucks. So like some combination in there. What do you do to unwind after a long day of work? Yeah, man, that's a good question. So 
My biggest thing, it's usually, so I'm more of do, I do my unwinding in the morning. Does that make sense? Okay. And so usually. Okay, so, so you unwind, yeah, you start the day unwinding and then you go intense. Yeah. So I usually, just because we have, you know, sessions usually pretty late into the night for the training program, uh, I usually finish up work and sometimes I'll do like some dishes or kind of do some stuff around my apartment, but then I'll usually hop into bed, hop on Twitter for 15 minutes, see what's going on, read a book until I fall asleep. So like at nighttime, I, I don't do much, but usually in the morning, that's like my time. And so I usually get up. And I'll take care of, usually, honestly, from bed, just emails, Slack, all of the shit that, like, just needs to get moving. And I'll, yeah, I usually have coffee, take a walk, and then the gym is my big thing. That's, like, my number one. Like, that's my me time. I have, like, rap music blasting to the loudest tent. Um, I have friends at the gym. You must say hi to you, but I try not to talk to anyone. I lift, and I walk home, and that's two hours of my day. By the time I walk there and back, and then eat afterwards. That's just like totally my me time. That's like my favorite part of the day. Wonderful. Do you have any annual family traditions? Hmm. Yeah, not so much anymore. I, I hope to, when I have a family, have some really cool traditions. I think it's really important. Now my family's kind of all, everyone's all around, all over the place. And so not really but I hope to recreate some. I think it's I think it's good. I think it's important and it's nice, especially we've seen with COVID, everybody getting out of any routines or traditions they have. Yeah, I think it's important, but as of right now, not really. Growing up, I did, for sure. Okay. What is something that you have done in your life that no one would expect? What is something I've done in my life that no one would expect? That's a good one. Pretty predictable. Uh, maybe we'll come back to that if I think of something. I don't have anything really good right now, which is a bummer. because That's a good question. I, I wish I had something like funny. No, no, that's cool. cool. But maybe, maybe I do. <laughs> okay. If, if you're banned from the internet for the next two months, uh, what are some things you will do? Shit. Stuff I say, I might be. If I was banned from the internet... I mean, that would suck because I thought, I mean, banned from the internet completely. Right, two months. That would be tough. I wouldn't be able to make any money, which would really suck. I wouldn't be able to talk to 90% of my friends, which would really suck. Probably, so I wouldn't be able to make money because all of my work I do through the internet. So if I was totally banned from the internet, I'd probably just go somewhere and walk around for two months. Probably go to, you know, some cool part of the world or multiple cool parts of the world and just go to different hotels and hostels and Airbnbs and just chill out so I can get back on the internet. I don't know. <laughs> the internet's important to me, man. Not that I'm like on my phone all day or anything, but like, you know, I spend all day either on my phone or my computer. So yeah, probably just go somewhere that I, that's on my bucket list and experience it and focus on uh, just enjoying myself. Awesome, man. I read a lot. I think you did well with with your rapid fire questions. I think. <laughs> yeah, those were really good. Usually, those are the rapid fires. Not great. Those were pretty good. Thanks. I, like I, think, I think it 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 leaves us with a with a good point of bucket list maybe to think about. And uh, I think this was a fantastic conversation, Kenny. I I think if people who are listening, I think there are so many uh, points of information which we need to revisit, re-listen to dive deeper. So maybe sometime in future, maybe we can do a round two. 
and really yeah i feel like i feel like one of my appreciator i think that i wish i would have maybe uh done a little bit better when we were going through some of those terms it's just really hard only verbally right. with no visual cues and starting from the very beginning and then so add and prone to tangents that uh, i wish that would have gone a little bit better so maybe next time if we do this again like we can start with that and then go through formally in like a structured way and if, if people find that valuable uh, i'm definitely down this is fun man i appreciate it. i appreciate you having me Awesome, man. Kenny, thanks for your time. Really appreciate that. And I will get back to you with the details uh, on, on the show and the release date and all that later then. Okay, but really appreciate this. Thank you so much. Yeah, take care, brother. Thank you. You have a good day. Bye. Bye. You too. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the show. All the key points discussed will be available in the show notes section at www.rareearth.com that is r a r e e r t h.com Thank you for listening to this podcast if you really enjoyed please do give me your feedback review and rate on iTunes or any listening app of your choice do subscribe and share thank you